Several years ago, I was in a study where the teacher talked about Scripture and said that all of life is a test, all of life is a trust, and all of life is temporary. And last fall, we went through a study in James and on Wednesday nights, and we saw that a lot of that uh, came out in that book. And as we look this morning in Matthew 25 verses 14 through 30, I think that we can see that Jesus teaches this explicitly or at least implicitly in this passage as well as he tells this story. Before we look at Matthew 25, 14 through 30 and read it, I'd like to make a couple of observations. The first one is this, that this passage is part of a series of parables that is described as the kingdom of heaven. And we see, for instance, in the first part of chapter 25, the parable of the ten virgins. And then we see this one, which is the parable of the talents, and finally the parable of the sheep and the goats. But Jesus here is teaching about the kingdom of heaven. The second thing that I would like to point out about this passage is that as Jesus tells this story... He presupposes that everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. And and, uh, this, I think, is implicit by what he says. We know this to be true from Scripture. In Psalm 24, 1, for instance, the Bible says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, the Bible says, God speaking says, All the earth is mine. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, 26, Scripture says, For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. So as we look at this story that Jesus tells, I think it's important for us to recognize that everything belongs to God. He has the property rights to it. Therefore, he may do with it what he pleases. And so with that, let's look at this passage beginning with verse 14 in Matthew 25. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went out on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I've gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow 
and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'd just like to make several observations from this story that Jesus told and, and make some comments about them as we go. The first observation is this, that the master entrusted his possessions to his own slaves. I think it's very interesting to note that because it goes back to what I believe Jesus presupposes as he tells his story. And that is what we read just a moment ago, for, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. And that means that not just everything that is material belongs to God in creation, but that means everyone as well. All of creation belongs to him. And so as I look at this, it reminds me of how God gives good things, not just to those who are believers, but to unbelievers as well, that all of us, we receive from God, that there's not any good thing that we receive that doesn't come from him. I'm reminded of this uh, from when I was a, uh, a child. Um, I, I'll show my age here, but uh, my elementary teacher would play the song, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. Every class, it seemed like, when I was in elementary school, and the, the song had just come out, very popular, and, and uh, I still can't get it out of my head. I'm working on it, though. Um, but it, it, when I heard the verse in Scripture that says, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, I understood that passage in light of the song that I had heard many times in that class, thinking that, the song says that basically rain falling on my head is a bad thing and I'm sad and it's a sign of sadness. And so when I read the scripture and heard this verse, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, I automatically concluded this means that bad things happen to everybody. And you can tell I'm kind of a glass half empty guy as opposed to half full. And so that was kind of my, my conclusion with that. And I came to realize that rain in ancient times, especially in the ancient Near East, was very much a good thing and that that was God's blessing. And when we read that passage that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, it is a passage saying that God even blesses the unjust with the rain, that any good thing that anyone receives, it comes from God. And so we see here that as he entrusts these possessions to his own slaves, each of his slaves receives something from the master. And it's important for us to, to realize that it does come from God. Everything we have comes from him. 
when I was a, a boy, one of my favorite movies was the movie Shenandoah. And uh, it is a movie about, well, it's a Jimmy Stewart movie, first of all. Now, Jimmy Stewart was kind of like um, John Wayne. Uh, they, they never acted different in any of their movies. They were always the same person in, in their movies. And Jimmy Stewart, it's just a Jimmy Stewart movie because he's the same person whatever movie he, he's in. And um, he played, though, a Virginia farmer living in the Shenandoah Valley during the time of the Civil War. And uh, his wife had deceased... Um, but he had uh, six boys and a daughter left to him. And before his wife died, she made him promise her that before each meal, he would offer a word of thanks to God in prayer for what God had provided. And so in the movie, um, this is how Stuart's prayer goes. And this stuck with me as, as a little boy, but he says this, Lord, we cleared this land, we plowed it, sowed it, and harvest it. We cook the harvest. It wouldn't be here and we wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We worked dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel. But we thank you, Lord, just the same for the food we're about to eat. Amen. Well, that's the attitude that maybe we can have, thinking that, look at what I've done and that I've achieved these things. But the scripture makes it very clear that anything that we receive or that we have, we have received it from the Lord, that it comes from God. And it's important for us to realize that. And we see here the master entrusted possessions to all of his slaves, to his own slaves. The second thing I would point out here is that each slave received something of value from the master. Now, we read this and we see that he gave them talents. And the word talent is used differently today in our English language than what it was in New Testament times. Because we think of a talent as an ability, but a talent was really a weight. And it was a measure of weight. And so they would weigh um, gold in talents or silver or copper, but it was the value of weight. And uh, when I look at uh, New Testament scholars and they talk about this, trying to figure out how much it was, they're, they're not in agreement with exactly how much it was. Some say they believe that a talent of gold um, in New Testament times would be equal to about 20 years wages of a common laborer. Others will say that uh, uh, a talent of gold in New Testament times would be equal to about $660,000 in U.S. currency today. So while they don't necessarily know exactly how much it was worth, just as the economy back in those days moved um, like it does today, um, they do agree with this, that it was a significant value. It was very, very valuable. And so we see here that every slave receives something of value from the master. Another thing is that each slave received a different amount from the master. But again, we need to remember that each received something of significant worth. But each received a different amount based upon what? Notice the text in verse 15. It says, based upon his ability. You see, for some, two talents would be too much to handle. For others, two talents would be too little for them to handle. 
And wisdom is being content with what God has given us, the amount that God has given us. Foolishness and folly is contending with God over what or how much he has given us. You see, wisdom trusts God that he knows what he's doing. It trusts God that when he gives us what he gives us, he gives us just the right amount. And he gives it to us according to our ability, according to how he has made us. Foolishness and folly is to question God in his decision and in his knowledge when it comes to giving us what we have. So I wonder this morning as we think about recognizing that God is the one who gives us according to our abilities, are we wise in being content with what God has given us? Or are we foolish in contending with God, acting as if God doesn't know what he's doing? And so it's important, I think, for us to, to recognize that wisdom is trusting God. It's having an attitude that God has given us the ability to handle what he has given us and that he has given us what he has according to our abilities. A fourth observation is that each slave did what he saw fit with his talent or talents. He did what he saw was fit with them. And it's interesting to see that two of the servants understood implicitly the responsibility of using what they had to increase what they had. We aren't told how they traded with the money that they had. Perhaps they invested it and, and they invested wisely and, and uh, the money came back and, and they doubled what they had through investments. It might be that they did it through purchasing things at a lower price and, and then turning around and selling them for a higher price and they made a profit in this way. It's very difficult to know how they did it, but we do know this, that they recognized the importance of using what the master had given them in order to increase it. And you'll notice also that they did it with all that they had. I'm uh, originally from Cleveland, Ohio, and if you're a Cleveland sports fan, um, well, it's a difficult life. And I've pretty much given up on the Browns, but uh, we put all our hopes in LeBron, and it looks like LeBron gave all his best years to Miami, so we're in trouble there as well. But um, it's interesting, when LeBron came back to Cleveland, they got a new logo on their shirts that they wore during warm-ups, and it's all in, that's what it says. And the idea was, we're all committed. We're all in to winning Cleveland, or as LeBron calls it, the land, um, a championship that we're totally committed. We're all in. We're going to give everything we have toward this. Well, these two servants, they were all in. They gave everything. They used everything that the master had given them toward investment to bring about more. And they did not hold back. Whereas one of the servants virtually did nothing with what he had except to bury it and to hide it. He definitely wasn't all in. In fact, 
it appears that he was very concerned about keeping it safe and that that was more of a concern than investing and increasing what he had. You might even say that his motto might have been better safe than sorry because that's exactly what appears to have been his thinking as he did what he did. I think there are churches that can, if, not, if they're not careful, adapt this kind of attitude. There are some churches that think that the best thing that they can do with the money that's given is to hold on to it. And it's all about getting a big bank account and keeping that money safe as opposed to using it for kingdom purposes. And that they don't understand that the money that is given is to be used for the work of the kingdom. It is not to pad the church's bank account. It is not to look at, oh, look at how much we have. But it ought to be, we're looking at is how much of what we have are we using for God's purposes, for the work of the ministry. And that is what churches fall into when they, they're all about bank accounts. They are misusing the money that has been given for the work of the kingdom. This can happen in an individual's life. A person can and, and does receive things from God, but they may, if they're not careful, fail to use what God has entrusted them. It may be money. It may be material goods besides money. It may be talents. It may be opportunities. It may be just your time in life, not using actually the, the health that you have and the able body that you have for the work of the ministry and for God's purposes and it becomes a waste and it becomes hiding and burying what God has given us to use for his kingdom. Also, we see here from this passage that there came a day when the master held the slaves accountable for what they had done with what he had entrusted to them. There came a day where they would have to give an account, where they did have to give an account. And this tells me that we need to be careful not to fall into the thinking that we'll never have to give an account for what we've done with what we have. And it, it is interesting in the passage here, it says that there was a long delay before he came. And I wonder if any of these servants, these slaves, begin to think, well, maybe the master's not coming back. Maybe we won't have to give an account for what we've done. Maybe this is really our money to have because he, he's not coming back. And so he's given it to us, so it's ours now. And maybe they were tempted to think that we'll never have to give an account for this. This belongs to us. And if they had thought that, they would have been wrong. And the same is true for us. We may think that, you know, what I have what I've earned and, and all that I've worked for, it's mine. It belongs to me. And I don't have to give an account to God for what I have. But we need to recognize that, again, it all belongs to him. And as it all belongs to him, someday we will all give an account for what we've done with what he has entrusted to us. Now, it's interesting as we think about this day of accounting that the master was more concerned 
about what they did with the money than about the amount of the money. He's not really talking so much about how much. What he's very concerned about is what they did with what they had. And this is important for us, I think, to understand that it's not a question about how much you or I have. The question is, what are we doing with what God has given us? Are we using it for kingdom purposes? You see, the master expected a return on what he had given them, regardless of the amount that each one had received. It was his expectation that the one would do something with the one to invest it, to increase it. That the one with two, that he would increase it, and the one with five, that he would. And there's more emphasis on that than there is the actual amounts themselves. Another observation is each servant was individually accountable. They were individually accountable. It's interesting as they come, we see this. The master's reaction to the two who doubled their trust um, was fivefold. The first thing, notice what he says here. He says, well done. He says this each to the one with uh, five um, and the one with two. He, he says to both of them, well done. You know, sometimes we as believers, we may imagine and wonder what it's going to be like when we see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. And I can tell you that as I've thought about it, what I long to hear are these words that the master said to these servants. Well done, good and faithful servant. I can't think of anything better to hear from the Lord than that. And this is what he says to them. And he says, well done, but he he says, good. He calls them good. This term good in the Bible is used a couple different ways. And and, and we today, just in our everyday language, we, we do the same thing. But the word good can carry with it a moral sense. Like Jesus, when he's speaking of God, he says, there's only one that is good. And he's talking about God's moral character, uh, who he is. And so there's that aspect of it. But also, in the New Testament, we see, and Old Testament as well, we see the word good used to speak of that which is useful or beneficial. For instance, Jesus, he says this, every good tree bears good fruit. In other words, every useful tree gives useful truth. There's benefit from it. Or he says elsewhere in Luke 13, salt is good, but if it loses its flavor, how can its flavor be restored? Again, he's talking about the benefit of salt. He's not talking about any moral characteristic to it, but the benefit of it. As I look at what the master says here to these two servants, I think it carries both ideas as they're implied. That there is a moral sense that it is good that they did the right thing with the master's money. That there's a morality there that they recognize this is not our money to do with as we please, but this, this belongs to the master. And so we're going to be faithful to him and we're going to do what's right by him because it belongs to him. And so there is a moral aspect to it that is good. 
And also, because they did double what they started out with, there's benefit. There's a use to the master. And so we see that what they did really was good. These servants were good because they did what was morally right, but they also did what was useful and beneficial and a blessing to the master. Notice also the master calls them faithful. This word faithful carries with it the idea of being loyal, dependable, trustworthy. It also carries the idea, though, of being like-minded. In other words, sharing the same purpose. As we read this story, we, we, we see that these two servants truly had the mindset of the master. They understood what the master wanted them to do. And they had the same purposes, the same goals. And so when the master came back to them, he found them faithful to his purposes. Also, not only is there the idea of like-mindedness, but there's expectation. It's interesting, the third slave, he didn't expect good things from the master. He said he's hard and, and he, he expected the master somehow to do do harshly or deal harshly with him. But these two, the first two, they expected good things from the master. They, they believed in their master. They, they knew that he's someone that they could count on and that there was something morally right about him. And so their faithfulness to him was demonstrated in their expectation of him. How many of you have ever been around somebody who expects the worst out of you? Would you say that they're faithful to your purposes and who you are if they expect you to do the wrong thing and to fail in doing the right thing? No. And so their faithfulness is not just an issue of loyalty, although they were, and it's not just an issue of of dependability and, and trustworthiness, but there was a like-mindedness and, and there truly was an expectation of the master that he'll do right. I wonder how many of us today, you're listening and I raise the question, how much do you really expect of your master? Do you expect the Lord to do right by you? Do you trust him in that? Do you really trust that what he's doing in your life right now is for your good and his glory? That he truly is completely trustworthy and that we can expect good things from this God who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all? That we would have an expectation of this God to do right by us, to do what's right. You see, that's a part of faithfulness. And they were faithful to him because they expected good of him. They understood his character. It's interesting as well, the master gave them an invitation. It says here, enter into the joy of your Lord. I think every believer here has a desire to experience the joy of the Lord. But I put before you that if you are a believer this morning, 
and you're not truly experiencing the joy of your salvation, the joy of the Lord, perhaps it's because you're not being that good and faithful servant, that steward that God has called you to be. It's possible because there's joy in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. There's joy in giving to his purposes. I remember when I was a little boy going to elementary school, my parents gave me $5 a week for lunches. The lunch each day cost 75 cents. So I had a little money extra. And my parents taught me that anytime you make money, make anything, you need to tithe. You need to give 10% of that. So what I'm about to tell you, I really can't take any credit for this because I was just a little kid and it's what my parents told me this is what I was supposed to do. And I did it. But what I would do out of that $5, since lunch only cost 75 cents a day, that left me some money at the end of the week over. And I would take 50 cents of that and started giving that to the church. I put it in an envelope each week and, and put it in the offering. I remember at the end of that year, that first year I did that, and in fact it was in January, our church would send out a record of giving for the year prior. And I remember uh, my mom saying, hey, you got a letter in the mail. Well, I was excited already just from that. I never received any mail. So I was like, wow, I got a, I got a letter? And so she gave that to me and I ripped that thing open and I looked and it was a record of how much I had given as a total for the year. And when I saw that, man, I was so excited. I really was. Because I was thinking, look at what I was able to give to what God's work is. I was able to do this. Now, in truth, it was my parents' money and it wasn't mine. But I was so excited about that. And that's a part of the joy. You, you see, it all belongs to God. The joy is that he gives it to us that we can join in with what he's doing and give to that work. That's the joy of it. That's a part of the joy of serving him. It's, it's like a child. Um, my, my, my sons, when they were little, and not so long ago, actually, and they're not so little anymore, but anyhow, they would take our money at Christmas and buy us a gift, okay? And so they'd say, you know, we're going to, and Ann would give them some money, and they'd be a part of getting a gift for Christmas or what have you, and it would be from them, realizing that really, no, no, this was our money, but they're like, hey, look at what we gave you. And this is, this is wonderful, it's to see the joy in them finding something to give to us, realizing that it really came from us. But the joy was in their being a part of that. We all understand that. And when it comes to kingdom living, the joy is that God gives to us so that we can be a part of what he's doing. And that's a blessing from God. To be a part of that, to be able to do that. And so that's why he says, enter into the joy of the Lord. And when we hold tightly to what we have, and we don't have this heart of giving to the work of Christ, 
understanding that it all belongs to him and there is joy in being in the service of our Lord, it's then that we, we miss out on the joy that it means to be a servant of the Lord. And so he says, enter into the joy of the Lord. And then he makes a promise to them. He says, I'll make you a ruler over many things. You see, when you faithfully use what the Lord has given you, he will give you more. That's just what the scripture teaches. In fact, if you don't believe that, let me give you a few passages. Luke 6, 38 says, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Remember this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Malachi 3, 10 through 12. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your wine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. A while back, I was reading John Piper's comments on this passage in Malachi. And I want to share with you some of the comments that he made. He says, if you, set your, um, your, if you set aside the commandment of tithing in order to feel better or content about not tithing, then your motivation is wrong. Paul setting aside this commandment was not to condone the cords that bind us to the love of money. He set it aside to break the cords that bind us to the love of money and free us for greater liberality. The manipulation of this law in order to ease our conscience while we do less is not a New Testament motivation for setting aside this commandment. The logic we hear is we live in the New Testament and we have seen the love of God at Calvary and the power of God over the tomb and have been filled with the spirit of grace, we are secure and nothing can separate us from the love of God. We have the promises of the Almighty that he will supply all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we may be content to give less than Old Testament saints. This logic makes no sense. It's like saying, I have no commandment to kiss my wife every day, so in order to show my freedom, I will kiss her once a week. I have Christ, so I can be content not to give what people who never knew what I know of Christ gave. Does this make sense? The reason God is pleading with you to make tithing the launching pad of your giving and liberality is that he wants you to be free of the love of money and from the fear of need. Don't you know that your heavenly father knows that you need these things? He wants to open heaven, stop the destroyer, And make the vine produce, tithe at least. It's interesting, we are never more godly than when we are given, or giving. And I think about this from John 3.16, one of the first verses most of us learn when we're children. 
For God so loved the world that he gave. He is a giving God. And we are godly when we give as well. The slave with one talent blamed the master for his actions. The slave described the master as being harsh or hard. It's the same word that's used in Jude 15 when he speaks of the ungodly sinners, how they speak about God. Also in 1 Samuel 25, it's the same word that's used of Nabal who uh, refused to pay David for what he had done, the kindness that David had shown him. So I ask you the question, how good do you really believe God to be? You see, the third servant, he really didn't believe he was a good God, a good master. He didn't trust him to be good, to do the right thing. He saw him as harsh, and therefore he was afraid. And he either didn't trust in the master's character, or he didn't trust in his judgment. But we need to remember it's the master who gave him the talent in the first place, and it's the master who gave him the talent according to the servant's abilities. And so he had the ability to do what he needed to do, but still he blamed the master for his not doing well. The slave appeared to be satisfied with giving giving back to the master what he had been given. And so when the master speaks to this third servant, notice what he calls him. First of all, he calls him wicked. Burying his talent and his unwillingness to invest it or use it in some way for the master's purposes was said to be wicked, morally wrong. How is that? Well, I'm reminded of a friend of mine who has done a lot of overseas ministry who got involved with an organization in Africa that was built or that that was digging wells for villages where there was the need of water and he saw some of these villages and it moved his heart and so he he got involved with that organization and he came back here to the states and he began pulling a lot of his own funds and, and getting other churches involved in, in giving to this ministry and, and helping them to build these wells so that these villages would have the water that they needed. After some time when these wells should have been completed, um, my friend found out that there was little to no work that had actually been done in digging these wells. And he found out that this organization was using all the money from these churches and from my friend um, for administrative purposes. And that it was being funneled to other things other than the purpose the funds had been given. And so my friend and these people in these other churches that had given, well, they were upset. And rightly so. Because the funds that they had given to this organization were being used for the wrong purposes. You see, that's what Jesus is talking about here. This is why the third slave is said to be wicked. Because he's misusing the funds that he was given 
for the purpose for which they were given. And so I wonder about us. Are we using what God has given us for the purposes of his kingdom? For his purposes? Or do we see what he has given us to be all about us? Our agendas, our purposes. And what he says here is when the servant doesn't give his attention to these things for the purposes of the master, he calls him wicked. And then he goes on and says he's lazy because he didn't do anything to really work to be a benefit to the master. There was nothing useful with what this third slave did to the master. I think the question ought to be raised by us this morning. Am I using what God has given me materially, opportunities, my health, my, my education, my, my background, all that, I, that makes me who I am and that God has given me, am I using them for his purposes or am I using them for something else? And am I using them diligently to be of use to God? To understand that I am his and he has called me to his purposes and to use me for his glory. That it's about him. Or am I like this third servant who was called wicked and, and lazy? So the master took the one talent and gave it to the one with ten. And the master cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. We begin to realize that this third servant really wasn't a believer here. Which brings us to some final thoughts I'd like to mention. First Everything we have belongs to God. If you haven't got that, just want to make sure I said it one more time. Everything we have belongs to God. You get a paycheck this week, if it's $1,000, the question is how much of that belongs to God? You may say, well, if you're seeing a tithe, um, $100, and I'd say, no, you're wrong in that. Because if you made $1,000 this week, $1,000 belongs to God. It all belongs to him. It's all his. And so we need to make sure we understand that truth. And the second thought I had with this is that the Lord expects us to use what he has entrusted us for kingdom purposes. To use what he has given us for kingdom purposes. And I think about this in the area of giving. What is the emphasis for stewardship in the New Testament? One of the emphasizes sincerity. In 2 Corinthians 8, 8, the Bible says, I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. So as he's talking about giving here, he's saying that giving demonstrates the sincerity of our love for Christ. So Paul downplays the possibility of commanding a certain level of giving because he wants to emphasize loving willingness and sincerity of love for Christ 
and not out of constraint as we give. It also emphasizes generosity. In 2 Corinthians 8.3, the Bible says, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. And in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 7, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. It is about cheerful generosity. That is the emphasis in the New Testament. And also it's about emphasizing capability. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, the Bible says on the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Notice that. It's in keeping with your income. Not somebody else's income, but with your income. Saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. See, it's about your capability to give. And not everybody is called to give the same amount, but each of us is called to give in light of what we have. And then it emphasizes intentionality. Ephesians chapter 4 Verse 28 says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands. Notice this last part, that they may have something to share with those in need. He's saying it's important that people have work so that they can make something to share with others. We are blessed so that we might be a blessing to others. Last thought I will mention is that our attitude toward money and things and how we use money and things says a lot about our relationship to Christ. Our attitude about money and things and what we do with money and things says a lot about our relationship to Christ. As I mentioned this third slave, he wasn't a believer. That even makes it worse. Because the question is this. Is my attitude, is your attitude about money and things more like the first two servants? Or is it more like the third servant? Who definitely was an unbeliever. You think about the scripture that says, he who did not withhold his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also through him freely give us all things? In light of Christ and God's generosity through his son to us, how can we not be all in to give for his kingdom purposes and to do so with joy because of the blessing there is in doing it. It's a shame that sometimes people in the church get upset when we talk about giving money because if you do get upset, that says there's something wrong with you. Now you that's okay, you can be mad at me. I don't actually work here anyhow. 
But the person who understands what Jesus is teaching here, they understand the invitation into joy there is in giving as God has called us to give. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us, for your generosity and especially, incredibly, the giving of your Son for us. May we be found faithful like these two servants who you said, well done, good and faithful servant, who you invited to enter into your joy, who you promised to even give more blessing to. May we be found faithful like them. And may we be found faithful joyfully because of who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen.